0: Hi, I'm Esther Yunji Kang and I'm Susie Ahn. Welcome to Shoes Off, a sexy Asians podcast.
1: Today's sexy Asian is a literal rock star. Samir Gadia is the frontman of the indie rock band Young the Giant.
0: The band's latest album, American Bollywood, bridges South Asian and Western cultures.
1: So good, so good. You know, I wish there were more bands with uh, non-white lead singers when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um what, what did you listen to when you were a kid? Were there any Asians in any of these bands?
0: Mm, no, <laughs> I,
1: I was uh, I was
0: into like Snoop Dogg and and Boys to Men, but I also later on liked Counting Crows. That was of the time. Okay, nothing okay. wrong with that. All right. Well, <laughs> there were no Asians in in those groups, but actually, the the first Asian that I noticed was. James Iha in the Smashing yeah. Pumpkins. Do you remember him? Oh, he was so, so cool, cute. so cute too.
1: Who was it for you? You know, I think uh, the first Asian musicians I really you know noticed was Chibomato. Mato. The, the they were like Japanese expats who formed a, a band in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and it was you know just kind of like fun, silly music. Nothing that was that serious. And I think I was really more drawn to them because they were two Asian women in the American rock scene. Yeah, that's pretty cool. You know,
0: it's kind of wild if you think about it, how when you're growing up, Whatever music uh, you listen to kind of just becomes yeah. like your identity, isn't that weird? Yeah, I mean, it was just it was kind
1: of a trap yeah. too, you know, like because you're an Asian kid. Yeah. If you listen to rap music, you were accused of trying to be black. That's right. If you listen to rock music, oh, you're, you're trying to be white. You're trying to be white, yeah. but it's like, what can we listen to? Can't win can't win. (laughs) I mean, maybe techno, but even then, that's not just an Asian genre.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Well, I think the good news is that today there's a lot more Asian yeah, representation in music sure. and different genres. So hopefully none of the young people growing up these days will be accused of, of being <laughs> being white or black or Just whatever. Just themselves. Yep, yep, that's the hope. Well, our guest today managed to rise above all of that and forge his own path in music, Samir Gadia is trying to change that narrative of indie rock by
1: telling his own story. He also tells us how he could have been Dr. Gadia mm. And that one time, a fan threw a prosthetic leg at him (laughs) on stage. That's coming up after the break. So, Esther, what comes to mind when you hear the word rock star?
0: I would say they're talented, they're charismatic, and, of
1: course, sexy. Well, our sexy Asian guest today is the epitome. Samir Gadia is the frontman of the critically acclaimed band Young the Giant. And as the
0: host of Point of Origin on Sirius XM, he shows that indie and alternative music
1: isn't just some white guy with a guitar. The Mayor Gadia, welcome to Shoes Off, a sexy Asians podcast.
2: (laughs) Thank you for having me. I haven't been called uh, sexy on a podcast ever, so this is um, this is a first.
1: Oh my goodness! First, surprising. (laughs) Well, uh, something we like to do with all of our guests is ask: At what point in your life did you think, "Yes, I am sexy"?
2: (laughs) I think you know all of us. Hopefully, you know in our twenties and. And uh, late teens, I have that kind of naive confidence. So maybe I I felt that sense of self probably, you know, when I was 20, 21. And and then you kind of like look back and you're like, I I was really cocky for no reason.
1: Well, I mean, typically the lead singer of any band is sort of you know, the sex symbol of of the <laughs> band. Um, as young, the Giant was starting out or, or even maybe further back with the Jakes. Did you feel that about yourself? Or, you know, were you feeling that from the audience?
2: To a certain extent. I think it's, you know, it's not like Tommy Lee type situation. <laughs> I'm not asking for it. I'm not taking my shirt off. I'm oftentimes making a fool of myself on stage. But I think that that carelessness and that freedom, is in its way sexy to some people, I guess.
1: When have you felt most confident on stage?
2: I would almost say that the times I ever feel confident are most definitely on stage in general in life. I think, you know, performance to me came, unlike, you know, a lot of things in life, came to me really naturally and without much thought or effort. It just was something that felt natural to me and exciting. And so the moment, the first moment I stepped on a stage when I was, you know, maybe 15 or 16, I knew that this is something special. And I do say I I save that confident part of myself sometimes for stage. And I'm trying to harness it a little bit more in my my regular non-Batman life.
0: (laughs) Well, this uh, question might be a little its too early for you, probably in the morning to answer this. But uh, has anyone ever told you you look like the actor Oscar Isaac?
2: I have heard this. I have heard this. Um, Maybe uh, once or twice. And that is very flattering. I'll take that any day.
0: (laughs) Well, he's not Asian, so we can't interview him for this podcast. So we would gladly have you. Um, And as we interview sexy Asians for this podcast we are finding that, you know, everybody kind of has a their own relationship to the term Asian American. So what would you say is your take on it? Like, do you identify with that? Or is it more Desi or Indian? Mm -hmm. Like, what's, Mm -hmm. what's your relationship to that term? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think I relate to all Asian Americans in terms of just our culture shock and our story, and our life story of trying to figure out what the next step is. And getting a seat at the table. I understand that. I think there are obviously a lot of issues with just that large monolith of Asian American, which is just like, you know, more than half of the world. And so I do identify with being Indian American. There are just some cultural particulars that are really great to me. And I think it's exciting to be Indian American and Asian American right now. We have the ability to, you know, tell the next story to the new generation. Is anyone out there listening? I've lost myself. Deep in the algorithm of someone else. And under new conditions, I might find that I was always perfectly alone.
1: Early on, you've said that people just assumed, you know, you were just a a white guy, a lead singer of this band. How did you even discover that? You know, was it like Internet comments or like people coming up to you at, at a show and saying really awkward things?
2: It was overwhelmingly just everything. You know, there were moments where our first single was just on nationally syndicated radio and you didn't really have a face to the name you just had young, the giant. And, um, I, I never thought that that would be a thing, but I was, I was very wrong. And, and, uh, I think one thing that did combat that a little bit is, you know, a year and a half into my career, we, you know, performed at the VMAs, you know, at that point, kind of overnight things changed for us. And that was like a wave. People were just like, wow, like I had no idea this guy was Indian. And like now, you know, it's like one of those weird backhanded things like now I'm 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 cool with that, you know, or something, you know. Um, but yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully then, but a sense of pride from uh, other Indian American kids were seeing this and like, yes, finally. Yeah.
2: You know, and the funny thing is, though, we have a lot of Indian fans, I think, especially with this new record, American Bollywood, but. I've heard so many times from Indian people that they didn't know I was brown, Mm -hmm. but it was maybe something the way I sang that reminded them of something else of, you know, old film tunes, Bollywood tunes or, you know, some classical runs. And um, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, you've talked about the whiteness of indie rock. Why do you think people just assume sometimes that indie singers are white? Is it a problem with the listener or how indie music is covered or marketed?
2: Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think there's always been diversity in alternative indie rock. And and I'd, I'd say that it's almost like it's not that there are all white people. You know, it's just there obviously are a lot of white males in the space, but it's just the media historically has chosen to highlight those artists because it's a narrative that is understood. Um, you understand the tropes of a rock star. Everyone w- wants to like put people in a box and so the artists who stick outside of that box have a harder time getting some critical or mass appeal. And that inherently is the issue or or just being able to be spotlighted. And I think that's, you know, with Point of Origin, that's what I'm trying to switch and change is that, you know, there are these artists and they've been there all along. And if you look at the very beginnings of of alternative rock music, which then, you know, sub shot into indie music or whatever, it was it was grown in Brooklyn and Bushwick and Manhattan, you know, in the 70s with hip hop at the same time. And, and they're right at the nexus of each other.
0: So you mentioned Point of Origin, your serious XM show uh, where you spotlight artists of color. You've spoken to a lot of great guests like Biba Doobie. And I'll make a cup of coffee. and Sudan
1: archives.
0: Have you felt a kinship talking with these artists because, you know, maybe you've had similar experiences in the music industry?
2: Most definitely. Point of Origin was created in some ways for myself. I had kind of come to this realization uh, sitting by myself or with my family that You know, when I hung my hat up and could try and talk to people about the things that had happened in my career, people were unsure of how to understand it. And I remember I just headlined the forum in L.A. and a good friend of mine who's a dean at USC, he's an Indian uh, professor, he came to the show and he's like, you know, I think you're the first Indian American to ever like headline the forum and sing it and Mm and be the lead singer. He's like, why is no one talking about this? Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, it wasn't necessarily for me, but it was like when we can create a community where we can celebrate these like touchstone moments, it's something that's exciting. And so when I got into point of origin, started talking with all these artists, it didn't matter. You know, I've had so many artists. I've had artists in Korea. I've had artists in South America, all over the States, um, in Europe. And, there's this kind of feeling of misunderstanding that is universal.
0: Mm. So identity and belonging are major themes in your music with albums like Home of the Strange and Mirror Master. But Young the Giant's latest album, American Bollywood, feels even more personal and vulnerable. Why did it feel like now was the right time for this album?
2: I'd had a lot of time to sit And it was a long time in between Mirror Master and American Bollywood. We had written a whole record for the most part. And something just didn't feel right. I knew that the next step that I wanted to do was to really speak truth out there, even if no one really understood it, that I needed it for myself to tell this story. And so the title track, American Bollywood, was the first song that I wrote in my home studio. He was strong just for his mother barely turned 13 when life made a man of him his father took the train to Bombay just to make a living on the tracks he said to him I'm not Never claim to be And I remember, you know, t- telling the guys, I mean, we were, we were about to, we'd been in the studio with producers too. Like we were like getting final mixes of songs and I was, I was like, guys, you know, I need to do this thing let me show you what it sounds like. And I need to do it with or without you. But if you guys want to be a part of this, let's do this. And so I showed it to them and I, everyone was extremely supportive and excited and, more or less, we kind of just started all over again. We, we kind of, like, you know, just erased the whiteboard and, and wrote a bunch of new songs again.
1: Plus, your sister sang on a track for the album. You look in the mirror,
2: babe.
1: Seem very close. Um, w- was it meaningful to be able to create art together?
2: Yeah, it's very meaningful. My sister is a very, very talented singer, and you know, I wish she would do it more, but uh, who knows? I'm gonna have to force her to make a record one day.
0: Well, speaking of your sister, uh, we found a home video of you singing when you were younger, and uh, it was on her Instagram, and the signs. Samir, we're all <laughs> there. I mean, you were a rock star from the beginning. Let's listen to a little bit of that.
1: Walking on the beyond night.
0: Walking on the beyond Oh, walking on the beyond night.
1: Sign that kid. Like, <laughs> what are you even
0: singing? Okay, you're using your sister's foot and hand as a microphone, and you're you're doing your own drum solo. What what are you singing? Rocking on the Bo Nine? What is that?
2: I have no idea. <laughs> I was I was trying to think about it, and I I don't remember. I don't remember at all. <gasps> um, there was always music in the house, and my dad loves music, so there was just a lot of Michael Jackson. There was a lot of Pink Floyd. There's a lot of Queen. You know, in Queen, when I found out Freddie Mercury was Indian, I was like, you know, Parsi. I was like, wow, this is this is amazing. But I didn't really think that it was going to be something I was doing. It was just something I had fun doing. My dad would film me dancing forever. I was just hyper, so I would just he'd just try and get my energy out. And I, I think I was just really trying to annoy my sister there.
1: I love hearing like what was playing in your house growing up. I mean, that was just sort of like your parents' collection. Like Your parents definitely sound way cooler than ours yeah. for sure. Yeah. For for me it was like church music, classical maybe, maybe a soundtrack for a musical at best. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned uh Queen, which, you know, Freddie Mercury was is iconic, you know? Uh do you fault him for changing his name? Or, or do you think at the time it was just sort of about survival?
2: I don't fault him at all for that. I mean, it was a very different time. And I think that if he hadn't changed his name, he wouldn't have made it. Hmm. I wish I didn't believe that because he has just once in a generation talent and a voice. But, you know, he had to do what he had to do. But I do lament at least later in his career, he had pointed to the fact that he came from this place. I think that would have done a lot for the community that would have done a lot for music. Uh, and so, you know, representation is extremely important.
0: As a young person, were you looking for that representation?
2: Oh yeah. Brown sound, obviously from some 41 was huge with that. Tony from no doubt, you know, there's, This band called Sigur Rós from Iceland. And their first guitarist was an Indian guy. And then he left to be a computer engineer.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) Um,
2: You know, I I, kind of catalog those things. So it is exciting. The guitarist of Explosions in the Sky is Indian as well. So, yeah, I love that.
1: Sticking uh, with your your teen years, uh, you met your bandmates in high school and played in local Battle of the Bands in Southern California. When did you all realize you had something special?
2: I knew that I could sort of sing. You know, I could sing in the shower. And, <laughs> and, you know, we practiced for months in a garage before we, like, had some songs and before I, you know, actually went on stage. But I do think it was, like, the first time I went on stage. You know, it was kind of this thing that it was, I don't quite believe in fate, but I, it's one of those things where I never actively was like really hustling to make music my thing. If anything, I was like almost, I was in denial that it was my true love. You know, I was, I went to college and I was studying something else and it like really took like a year into my career actually, where I stopped for a second. I was like, wow, these things have just found me in some way. You know, with these battle bands, I was, we were going on stage. I remember there was one show. It was a battle of bands. It was the first show we ever played. And we weren't even on the ticket. But our friend's band was. And they're like, you guys should come on stage and play a song. Oh, wow. And they had active judges there. And so we, we came on, played a song, and just left. And the judges were like, to the band that had let us do that, they're like, that was the stupidest thing you could have done because they're way better than you. And uh, the music at that point was not good. We weren't weren't writing great songs, but it was just, there was an energy there, an excitement.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned, you know, focusing on your music in college, but you ended up leaving Stanford. What was it like having to make that decision to leave, you know, a a place where there's predictability, there's sort of a mission, you know, what you're uh, headed towards?
2: It was a very tough decision. I think and it's probably one of the toughest decisions or the the most important decision I made in my life, you know, in some ways. I think it was a leap of faith, but at the same time, it came with some stuff that I could understand that, okay, things are moving forward a little bit here. You know, I I like to speak at colleges and there's just this general census where some people feel like they aren't really doing what they want to do. And, you know, I just say, you know, you can fail at doing something that you really don't want to do. So you might as well just try, you know, to do the thing you love. And that being said, I mean, there are people who come to me and they're like, yeah, I I just want to drop out and maybe I should drop out. And I'm like, well, you know, you should just stop for a second. But, you know, at that point we had kind of gotten some label attention. We'd had some management attention. We'd gotten offered to play with the Kings of Leon. We're selling some records in Japan. And uh, it was like, okay, well this makes enough sense. We're like, I could put a year into this and do it. That being said, I feel like a lot of people should take time off, you know, in college. I mean, there's no reason to waste all the opportunities and all the chances uh that you have there when you're burnt out. So there's, you know, uh, a lot of people particularly at, you know, those those schools like Stanford, they were burnt out. I mean, they they like finally got into the place they wanted to be and, and now they just want to like kind of chill. And uh, that's not how the world works. You know, you still have to continue. Some of the most successful people I know never went to college.
0: It's weird to think that you could have been Dr. Samir Gadia at this point, And we could, you know, you could be at a doctor's office and you just completely changed lanes. And I think about how you had to explain that to your parents, right? Like, I think in an interview, you said that you had some spreadsheets and you showed the math of like, this could really work out, like I can make a living or what have you. And Your mom was a singer, right? And so did she come around to this idea before your dad did? Was it staggered? Mm -hmm. Did they they kind of come together? Like, what was that Mm -hmm. like for them?
2: Yeah, it was tough for them. I, You know, my mom was a singer by Hobby, and she, like, loved music. My dad's mom was a professional singer at the very beginning when she was really young and then, you know, had the pressure to start a family. She was one of the only family members— who had no issues with it at all. She was like, please do it because I didn't get to do it obviously. And I think she was pretty bitter about that, you know, understandably through the course of her life. My parents, I think at the time I wanted to believe that they didn't want me to do this because of, you know, what would people say? You're not going to make money. You know, we don't want people to think you're a stoner or whatever. And um, I think in reality, like looking back at it now, it was like they kind of, knew that being in a position like this and being put in some level of fame is very difficult on a person and can cause a lot of issues with, you know, mental health and I've gone through that in, you know, waves over the course of my career. And I think in some ways they were saying that not because of all the other practical things, but because they just wanted me to be happy and they wanted me to to uh not be stressed out. So I, I don't I don't fault them for that. But it was a tough decision. I mean, I think uh, they're the ones who were holding out for a long time. And so we did bust out the spreadsheets. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, overall your parents seem pretty cool. We did we did see your dad's new tattoo, so Yeah. <laughs> Not a lot of dads doing that, nope. so that's really that's <laughs> cool.
2: <laughs> yeah. I had to convince him to get it a little bit smaller. He wanted that whole thing on his arm. Oh damn. <laughs> Leave some space.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: After the break, Samir talks about dealing with racism as an Indian American musician and about interesting encounters with fans. Stay with us.
1: As children of immigrants or even as people of color, sometimes societal pressures can make us feel like we don't belong on stage. Was that ever an issue for you?
2: I don't think it was ever an overt issue. But I think just the nature of being other and feeling separate that you know, maybe not everyone quite understands your story, your narrative, and um, what you're trying to say, that emotion or that last bit of thing that's lost in translation— can sometimes make all the difference of feeling like if you belong. So even though I didn't experience much overt racism, uh, with the exception of a few rare times, which at this point is it's kind of just comical, the great thing is I've always had my band with me. They're kind of like support for me. And when rare instances like that happen, they just kind of like ridicule it and it becomes a joke when it's that overt and I think there's obviously that level of privilege and understanding for me that I'm not a black man or woman in America and I don't experience that level of overt racism on a constant basis for me that was happening before home of the strange and before Trump was elected we had started to play a lot of college shows and also because you know people kind of think I'm white when they don't know what I look like we play colleges everywhere like in the deep south middle of nowhere And, you know, I was starting to sense this heightened level of racial tension, people yelling after a show, something stupid, you know, saying like, you know, sand something. I've had, you know, more issues in Europe, Mm, I think. There are a lot of immigrants around Europe, and that's become a huge political issue over the last four or five years. Turkish and Syrian. We were in Hamburg not too long ago, like in 2019, and I I got like yelled out of a bar, you know, and, they, and the band guys were like, what is going on? I mean, it's very rare. You know, those things happen I'm like, OK, we'll just go to the next bar.
1: I mean, I'm curious your take on this. Like I, I was a, a big Smiths and Morrissey fan. Um, he was someone who spoke out for Outsiders and that was so appealing. And and I know in the early days of Young the Giant, Morrissey declared your band one of his new favorites. Uh, you, you were also featured in his 2019 album but you know in the past few years he's been making anti-immigrant comments taking far-right stances how do you feel about him now and are you able or is it possible to separate the artist from the art
2: hmm. it's a very it's such a you know great question it's a very complex issue because i think i'm not trying to defend anyone i think there is obviously like a line but there is a level of mental instability that is supported and aided and flourishing within artists in general. You know, there's the way that we divine our worth, the way that we are lifted up or, or pushed down. Um, It's like we are dehumanized in some way. I'm not trying to say that, Oh, we have it so bad, you know, Uh, people have it a lot worse. But I think when you incentivize people that, okay, the only way they can find worth is if people are talking about them, then they will just do anything to be talked about, you know? And, and oftentimes it's a strategy. Oftentimes it's so like subconscious. that's like fused into the brain where people have lost complete touch with humanity and uh, no human being is supposed to be famous. Like, I don't think that that is something that we're biologically equipped to handle and so when you're on that stage and you also are suffering from mental health issues, there are a lot of things that can be said and done. But, you know, there's some things that just cannot stand. There's certain things you just can't say.
0: For your own self, have you experienced sort of the pressures of fame? And I mean, you talk about how this, it's the this sort of phenomenon among rock stars, among musicians. And how do you deal with those pressures?
2: You know, I am been very lucky in that I have, like, the perfect level of fame. I'm, like, semi-famous is what you would say. I would never wish complete fame. Like, I wouldn't wish it on, like, my worst enemy. Some people are like, oh, well, you're so rich and famous. Well, like, a lot of those guys are spending all their money to be safe. You know, Leonardo DiCaprio can't really walk just about anywhere. He can't really do anything. Um, and everyone wants something out of him. Everyone thinks... He can change their life or whatever. And that's with so many famous people. For me, it's it's usually like kind of just every now and then. It kind of makes a strange level of existential paranoia because you can walk into a grocery store and be like, feel like you're like living a normal situation. And all of a sudden, maybe someone will come up to you and you're wearing like PJs and and they're like, yeah, I'm a huge fan of your, your band. Can I take a photo? And then everyone else is like, who is this guy? Um, oh, uh, It's
0: Oscar uh, Isaac. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> That's pretty funny. I remember, you know, I live in LA. And so we always fly out of LAX. At the Delta Terminal, there's oftentimes one or two, like, TMZ camera people. And I think it was, like, Robert Downey Jr. was, like, walking through and people were, like, freaking out. You know, TMZ reporters are snapping photos. And I was walking past and one of the camera guys, he like came up to me and he just like put away his camera. He's like, dude, I'm a huge fan of your band. And, and, I, and I was like, this is perfect. Like this is the perfect level of fame. Yeah, like you put the camera down. You know that no one wants to hear this stuff about me and I'm cool with that, you know. Uh, so that's fine.
1: Paparazzi being respectful. That yeah. is wild. <laughs> that's
2: a first. It's it very, very, very strange.
1: Well, what do you think a teenager Samira would think of you right now?
2: he would be so floored and like just could have never imagined in his wildest dreams that any of these things could have happened. And I want to actually try to, you know, bring that level to myself, you know, on a daily basis, because, you know, us as, us as human beings, we always want more. We want to achieve more. And particularly like immigrants, you know, Asian immigrants in particular, we, we have been branded healthily or unhealthily to like, define our level of value based off of how successful we are and it doesn't matter what line of work you are in it ends up finding its way in there and so you know for me right now sometimes i on a daily basis you know like uh, yeah like on instagram it looks like everything's great but i grapple a lot of the times with with this stuff and that voice in your head and and how things are supposed to be and how they should be and why haven't you gotten there yet and you know, you haven't really made a difference or whatever. And so, and these are things that I think reach everyone. It doesn't matter what point you are in your career. You just have to realize that, that you're always going to have those thoughts. It doesn't matter. Um, there's always going to be the next place for you to go, but that's just life. And that's, that's the journey.
0: What would you say there is? Like you said, you, you know, feel like you haven't gotten there. I wonder if some part of you wants to go back to school, like I've just been curious, like what is success for you?
2: I think in some ways it's not even really about like the accolades or about money. It's actually rarely ever about the money. It's more like, have you reached your full potential as a creative person? Like, have you tapped into the deepest part of your creative spirit yet? And being like, have you given yourself to this truly? And you oftentimes always falling short of that perfection there's no such thing as perfection and so there's that obviously like i'm working on really not trying to derive any type of like fruits from my labor which is very hard to do when you when you create something and spend years making it and i'm regardless of when that is good and when that's bad i'm trying to just just be like well does this fulfill me creatively does this make me happy and I'm lucky to be that place in my career right now. But yeah, I mean it's like I wanna do everything. I, I wanna I wanna do this. Uh I wanna make, you know, a bunch of young the giant records. I wanna make my own records. I wanna produce other people's records, I wanna score more films, I wanna I've been doing a lot of like fiction writing again, I've been doing a lot of screenwriting, I wanna be doing all those things. But at the same time, you know, I need to take some time for myself and so I can give that time to my family as well
0: well before we wrap things up here we'll play a game that we like to call extra credit because Asians right Mm -hmm. Uh, we will ask you some rapid fire questions so to start first album you bought with your own money
2: I think I bought like Papa Roach (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) Um,
1: who was your first Asian celebrity crush
2: Lucy Liu yeah
1: that's a good one
0: what is uh, your dream collaboration
2: I don't really have one that's a horrible answer but I don't
0: (laughs) there's nobody you're dying to work with
2: I I'm dying to just work by myself
1: oh
2: (laughs) in a band in a a great way in a a band it's like it's always a collaboration and so actually I've been having a lot of fun just kind of like allowing myself to to take full control
1: that makes sense yeah
2: and obviously and also if I if I like really went to like an idol or someone either they would like maybe disappoint me or just be a huge dick which is often like 99% of the time that's usually how it is yeah but maybe he's going up there now but maybe Quincy Jones because he is all the things he is like so nice such a sweet person and so immensely talented
0: what album is in heavy rotation for you?
2: I've been listening to this new artist named uh, Hemlock Springs. She has, like, two songs. That's it. But she's getting a lot of love already. I was listening to the new Avalanche's record a lot recently, too.
0: Weirdest thing anyone's thrown uh, at you on stage?
2: I mean, you know, the bra isn't a weird thing anymore. That that, that happens all the time. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, it happens very rarely. Um <laughs> Someone, no, you know, this is not weird, but it was great. Someone gave, um, threw up their prosthetic leg on stage (laughs) and wanted us to sign it. So we signed it and gave it back. It was great.
1: Yes. That is, that's actually a great guarantee that you're going to get something signed and then have it come back to you. Oh, yeah. Wow. Good on that person. (laughs) And where does fan encounter?
2: We had realized at one point that there was like, fan fiction about us and um, though I I didn't meet any of the novelists of that that was kind of like endlessly entertaining and cringy for us (laughs) it was just like deep weird chroniclings of very sexual fan fiction
1: oh okay Mm.
0: yeah that's weird (laughs) well
2: we're just like we're just kind of all like going at it the whole thing (laughs) alright
0: okay Okay. last question shoes off or on in the house
2: off, 100%. And house slippers.
1: We've been talking with Samir Gadia of Young the Giant. You can see them live during their summer tour. In the meantime, make sure to listen to the group's latest album, American Bollywood. And check out Samir's serious XM show, Point of Origin. Samir, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. Thank you.
0: After every episode, we've been asking for your Sexy Asian nominations. This
1: time, we want to hear what this show has meant to you. As we wrap the first season of this podcast, tell us, what did you love about Shoes Off? Did you have a favorite guest? Was there a particular moment that has stayed with you? Email us a voice memo at shoesoff at wbez.org. First off is a production of wbez chicago this episode was produced by esther Yoonji kang stephanie kim and me suzy on our executive producer is brendan banizek if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to like and subscribe and leave us a five-star rating it'll help us reach more people and bring you more conversations with sexy asians we'll see you next time stay sexy